already frozen enough because of where I live. <clears throat> Today I want to look at a man who played an intricate part in the resurrection story. In some ways he represents many people and in some ways he might represent someone here this morning. I think it will be a help to us as we read this. Matthew chapter 26 verse 59 <clears throat> is where we're going to start. Verse number 59. Now the chief priests and elders and all the council sought false witness against Jesus to put him to death. But found none, yea, though many false witnesses came, yet found they none. At the last came two false witnesses and said, This fellow has said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and, not, and to build it in three days. And the high priest arose and said unto him, Answerest thou nothing? What is it which those witness against thee? But Jesus held his peace and the high priest answered and said unto him, I adjure thee by the living God that thou tell us whether thou be the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus saith unto him, Thou hast said, Nevertheless I say unto you, Hereafter you shall see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest rent his clothes, saying, He hath spoken blasphemy. What further need have we of witnesses? Behold, now you have heard his blasphemy. What think ye? They answered and said, He is guilty of death. Then did they spit in his face and buffeted him, and others smote him with the palms of their hands, saying, Prophesy unto us, thou Christ, who is he that smote thee? I want to preach to you this morning on the Jesus problem. The Jesus problem. Father, I pray you'd help us as you be uh, in the next few minutes here that you uh, speak through your word, Lord, and if there be one here today that does not know you as Savior, <coughs> could that be rectified before they leave? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Before we get into the message here, I'd like to take just a moment and answer some questions that come up during the resurrection time and, of course, all throughout the year. Uh, there's some questions that are asked about the resurrection. Uh, the first question is simply, is it possible? Now, Matthew 28, 1 through 2, the Bible says, In the end of the Sabbath, as it began to dawn toward the first day of the week, came Mary Magdalene and that other Mary to see the sepulcher. And behold, a great earthquake, for the angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat upon it. Uh, this is an instinctive response, It's a, uh, especially psychologically speaking, when we talk about the resurrection of the dead, to ask the question, is it possible? If somebody hears about the idea of Jesus being risen from the dead, automatically, and I've heard the question, you probably have too, how is that possible? How could that be? Surely that's just some kind of legend. That's the first question. But I'd like to point out that often this is not really a real question. What I mean by that is the question is usually given more as a rhetorical question. Rhetorical questions are not questions seeking information. Rhetorical questions are statements made to prove a point. I'll give you a, 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 a few here just as an example. If the rule is I before E, except after C, isn't science spelled wrong? That's a rhetorical question. I'm not asking you, I'm telling you, okay? Why do people say PIN number when what they're actually saying is personal identification number number? PIN number. Stay with me. Why did Noah keep the woodpeckers on the ark? Good question. If something goes without saying, why do people insist on saying it anyway? These are rhetorical questions. They're, they're to make a point. They're not seeking information. They're to try to prove some kind of point to you. In other words, when someone says, how is that possible? Most of the time, what they're really saying is, that's not possible. It's a rhetorical question to make a point. 
Now, it's an excuse. And the sad thing is that many Christians give people a pass after that. I don't believe it. I don't think it's possible. Okay, and they just let it go. But it's not a valid excuse. In Matthew 28, 1 through 2, it uses supernatural words. Great earthquake, the, the angel Lord descending in heaven. Matthew is pointing to something greater than the world that we live in. Let me ask you a question here. If there is a God and he created life, could he not resurrect life? I think most of us in here would agree. I believe that there's a God who created the heavens and earth. I hope you do uh, believe just as the Bible says. And so if God created life uh, and we all agree that, then would it be any less possible for God to resurrect life than it would be to create life? If there is a God at all, then resurrection certainly is not impossible. <coughs> now, somebody else might say, well, well, wait a second, preacher, I don't even believe in God. I don't believe there is a God, and so that's why I don't believe in the resurrection. Well, that doesn't really work either. Because let me ask you this, if you don't believe in God, if there is no God, then where did life come from? Well, you really only have one possible answer you're stuck with, and that is, it just happened. And your own logic then gets you into trouble. Because if life just happened, friend, then the resurrection could just happen. Amen? Because you're not living by any sort of rules. You see the conundrum. If there is a God, then some things are possible and some things are not. That's because he makes those rules. But if there is no God, then there are, then anything's possible. Anything can happen. There are no rules, physical or moral. There's no laws of nature. How could there be? Who would create them and who would execute them if there is no God? All I'm trying to say is it's impossible to say the resurrection is impossible, no matter where you come from. Number two, then, if, then saying it's possible, is it true? What evidence does the Bible give that these are eyewitness accounts, not just a fabrication of some story, like uh, secularists will tell us that these are written later and, <coughs> and people just made them up? Well, I've got a few here I want to give, and this is by no means an exhaustive list. I would recommend a book for you if you ever want to read more into this. It's called Jesus on Trial, written by David Limbaugh. Wonderful book. Uh, that goes into very depth about this stuff. But there's a couple of different things the Bible tells us right off the bat, or that shows us. Number one is the transparency. Matthew records uh, the theory that the guards fell asleep and the body was stolen. He says in verse 13 of the chapter I quoted from earlier, saying, uh, some are saying, say ye his disciples came by night and stole him away while he slept. And if this come to the governor's ears, we will persuade him and secure you. So they took the money and they did as they were taught. So this is what the they they paid the jailers to say, hey, start telling people that somebody came and stole his body while you slept. Now, Matthew says this story was concocted to explain the empty tomb. And that because, by the way, there's no denying the tomb's empty. They didn't try to argue that. The tomb was empty. Now, if you're going to make up a story like the book of Matthew to prove the uh, resurrection of Christ, if you're going to make that up, no sensible person would then create a plausible counter theory to offset your story if you're going to make something up. And so we know that that lie was being circulated, that somebody came and stole the body. And really what all this does is it does prove there was an empty tomb. That tomb was empty the next morning. And so this is one of the things that really wouldn't make sense if this were a concocted story. So transparency. The second uh, evidence we have is the first to get the news. Before Jesus appeared to his disciples, after he was raised from the dead, he appeared to women. Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Joseph. 
Uh, who were the first people to meet Jesus? Women. Now again, you're thinking, big deal, preacher. What's the big deal with that? Well, then it was a huge deal. Because women were not allowed to own property. Women were not allowed to uh, testify in court. Uh, or, or a lot of different things that men were able to do. I've said before many times, the best thing to ever happen to women was Jesus Christ and Christianity. Amen? And before that, uh, they didn't have any of those rights. And so if a group of men in that society are going to write and concoct a story trying to prove the resurrection of their Savior or their Messiah, they would never in a million years use women as the first witnesses. Because anybody who heard that story, oh, you say you're Messiah raised from the dead? Who do you got to corroborate that story? Well, we have these women. Pfft, women. That's how they would respond. And I'm not saying that. Okay, That's what they would say. All right. A couple of you looked at me kind of hatefully there for a minute. Uh, this is, I'm telling you what they felt like. Yet all the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all recorded that women were the first witnesses. And that would only happen if, you know what, if women were the first witnesses, which they were. Praise the Lord. The third uh, evidence we have is life on the line. At the end of the chapter, Matthew chapter 28, verse 19, he says, Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost. Secular historians have always wondered how in the world Christianity pulled it off. Here, it was a group of uneducated nobodies, marginal people, yet in 200 years, they swept the Roman Empire and became the dominating force in it. It has never happened since, and it never happened before. No group of people would go to the stake to be burned, uh, praising a god of their own imagination. And they did. If you read Fox's Book of Martyrs and other accounts, uh, even the twelve apostles, every one of the twelve apostles except for one uh, died a martyr's death. You think they would have done that for a lie? No way. They did it because they are the resurrected Savior. And those are just a few evidences there. Of course, there are many more. But today, I want to go a different route. I want to look at sort of the day in the life of. I don't know if you like history like me, but one of the things I love, <coughs> love is if they take somebody that you admire, or somebody that lived in a different time, and they do a day in the life of that person. I want to look at that today uh, for the purposes of seeing the progression of events that took place at, that we celebrate this weekend. It all starts out, at, and by the way, I'll just tell you offhand here, part of this is estimation, part of it is conjecture, so please don't say that pastor went and told you at 5.45 this happened in the morning, so uh, these are partly conjecture, but it just gives us a picture. 5.45 a.m., the sun rises in the east, animals begin to stir, merchants start to leave their homes to go to their shops and booths. In the southwest corner of the city, in a large palace, an iPhone alarm goes off, and Joseph Caiaphas wakes up to a new day. Caiaphas is only mentioned for... It wasn't really an iPhone, all right? I just want to get... Uh, the, I'm just using artistic license, okay? All right. Caiaphas is only mentioned four times in the New Testament. He's mentioned at the raising of Lazarus in John chapter 11. He's mentioned at the trial of Jesus in Matthew 26 and John 18. He's found in the trial of Peter and John in Acts chapter 4. He played a critical role in the plot to crucify Jesus. He was present at Jesus' trial, at his beating, and his crucifixion. It is Caiaphas that I want to look at today. Caiaphas was born at the tribe of Levi. 
This is the tribe that God chose to be the priests of the, of the Israelites throughout the generations. And Caiaphas himself served as a high priest for 18 years, beginning in about 15 AD. The high priest served as the Jews' representative of God. Uh, he led them in their worship and performed rituals and such things. Once a year, the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies and offer sacrifices to God there. He was in charge of the temple treasury, the temple police, and he was also the president of the Sanhedrin. But in about 30 AD, the Romans took from the Sanhedrin, which they are made up of the Sadducees, the Pharisees. The Pharisees believed in the resurrection. The Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection. That's why they were sad, you see. And uh, Caiaphas, old joke, sorry. Caiaphas was a Sadducee and he was the head of the Sanhedrin. Now, the Romans took away from the Sanhedrin the right to execute or to give capital punishment on any of their prisoners. This is why Caiaphas had to come to Pilate about the punishment for Jesus. The high priest served as a liaison between the Romans and the Jewish population. Now, not much is known about his 18-year reign, Caiaphas, but the fact that he was there that long leads us to believe that he had a way of getting along with the Romans and still protecting the religious freedom of Israel. So how does he fit into the Easter story? Well, he was the leader of the religious elite of that day. For 1,500 years, God has worked through the temple the sacrifices, burnt offerings to deal with sin. This all pointed to that day when one day God would send that perfect Lamb of God into the world to take the, to die on all our behalf and to take away our sin. Until that Lamb of God came, then the Israelites would sacrifice animals in picture of Him. Well, God has now done what He said He would do. He has sent His Son, Jesus Christ the Messiah. But the problem was that when Jesus came, not many of the Pharisees and the Sanhedrin actually accepted Jesus for who he was. Uh, you see, and by the way, they were right about one thing. Because if Jesus Christ was not who he said he was, he was the worst sort of scoundrel. It is absolutely intellectually impossible for a person to look at Jesus Christ and say, I believe he was a good man. I believe he was a great prophet. I don't believe he was God, but I believe he was a good man. If he was not God, if he was not the Son of God, then he was a consummate liar and the worst sort of scoundrel. They recognized that. And they, of course, did not believe that he came from God. His claims, Jesus Christ's claims, demand a decision. A decision they did not want to make. Caiaphas thinks about all these things as he's putting on his priestly robes. It's 8 a.m. The day has fully begun now. The city is packed and people are preparing for the Passover. They're buying pigeons and lambs and herbs for the Passover supper. And in the temple itself, merchants are setting up to do business. It was just a few days ago that that troublemaker, Jesus, came through flipping over tables and, and swinging a whip back and forth, almost caused a riot calling them thieves and and uh, all kinds of things. And Caiaphas, as he prepares to leave for the temple, is thinking about this, this troublemaker, Jesus. What a pain in his side Jesus has been. He, ha he wants nothing. Uh, he, he, he was nothing but a troublemaker. Uh, he's doing nothing but causing waves. And Caiaphas understands and recognizes very clearly the Jesus problem. He has told the Sanhedrin that it's better for Jesus to die than for the nation to die at the hands of the Romans. And uh, Jesus was a problem. 
I mean, he was a threat to the whole system of religion that they believed. He was a disturber of the peace, and he was a menace to society. And that counsel that he gave to the Sanhedrin, that uh, the, the uh, sacrifice of one for the sake of many would lead to the plot that was to deliver Jesus into his hands. There were those that even called him king of the Jews. And if the Romans got wind of this, there would be all sorts of trouble for them to deal with. And so Jesus had to die, and the sooner the better. This brought a smile to Caiaphas' face, because today, today he would take care of the Jesus problem. It's 11 a.m. Caiaphas meets with a few of his closest friends in a strategic, strategic, in a tactic session, uh, putting together the last details to kill this man Jesus. It's hard when you're in front of people, okay? Uh, there's one very big problem. Jesus had a lot of followers. He had just raised a man from the dead. Did you hear me? From the dead. That tends to get you kind of popular. That put him on Twitter. And uh, then he had rode him in town last Sunday on a donkey nonetheless, and people are cheering him and, and waving palm branches. He's very popular at the time. But Caiaphas had just caught a break, and it was a big one, because one of Jesus' own disciples has decided to defect. And he's come in secret and offered to lead his soldiers to Jesus that night. Now, does Caiaphas trust him? Uh, Caiaphas was a self-centered schemer, and if there's one thing a schemer uh, that bothers a schemer is another schemer. And so he didn't know if he could trust him, but things are falling into place. 5 p.m. It's outside the city. A little band of men prepared to enter for the Passover meal. Uh, heading to an upper room. Two had gone ahead to make sure that everything was ready. In just a few minutes, this little group of 13 men would enter the city. There, these men would share an evening meal together. Coincidentally, the house that they met in was not far from the palace of Caiaphas. 8 p.m. Throughout the city, families are gathering together to share in the Passover meal, according to Matthew 26. Parents are telling their children all about what God did so many years ago, delivering them out of the land of Egypt, and together they celebrate <coughs> around the Passover meal. In the borrowed upper room, Jesus meets with his disciples for the final time. All of a sudden, he announces this thunderbolt. He says, one of you shall betray me this night. I can imagine the feelings when he said that in Matthew 26, 21. Uh, this would have stunned everyone that was in the room. Eleven, uh, eleven immediate thoughts were, what? Betray you? One person's thought was, uh-oh, because he knew what was going on. Judas knew what was going on, but he still plays the game because in a, in an effort, because as, as they don't want to be the ones to betray him and, and they are like good, most of them are good men and they don't want to be the one to do it. No one wants to betray Jesus. And so they begin to eliminate themselves by asking him, Lord, is it I? Is it I? Well, Jesus know, a uh, Judas knows who it is and yet he plays the game. He also in Matthew 26, 25 said, is it I? To the, to Jesus. A few minutes later, Jesus tells him what you do. Do it quickly. And Judas gets up and leaves the room. It's only a short walk to the palace of Caiaphas where Judas now tells Caiaphas, tonight, I can take you to him tonight. It's 11 p.m. The meal in the borrowed room is finished. Jesus leads the eleven to the Garden of Gethsemane to pray. It is a time of intense emotion for Jesus to the extent that in Luke 22:44. The Bible says, and being in an agony, he prayed more earnestly 
and his sweat was as it were great drops of blood falling down to the ground. 12.15 a.m. The city is asleep. Outside the city, a parade of torches shines through the darkness. They are heading for the garden called Gethsemane, led by Judas Iscariot. As the traitor got close, Jesus, for the last time ever, calls him by his name. In Luke 22:48, Judas, betrayest thou the Son of Man with a kiss? Jesus used his favorite title, the Son of Man. It was a loving attempt to call Judas back, give him one last chance to come back from the abyss. But Judas kissed the door of heaven and then walked through the gates of hell. The men left the garden with Jesus, now a prisoner. 1 a.m. Caiaphas hears a commotion in his courtyard and in comes the guard with him, the prisoner, Jesus of Nazareth. Caiaphas has his man. Now the railroading can begin. Caiaphas has to maintain the appearance, at least, of some kind of above-boredness and propriety. And so they have a trial, although it is a mock trial all set up by him. They hunt for witnesses. They found a lot of witnesses, but these witnesses had nothing to offer of any value. Matthew 26.60 tells us that many came, but the witnesses did nothing to implicate Jesus. Their testimony was incomplete. It was incompatible. It conflicted with itself. Probably many of them were even intoxicated. Caiaphas is frustrated. Will he ever get his death sentence? And then two witnesses are finally found that managed to conjure up something that he can use. They accuse Jesus of saying that he will tear down the temple and raise it up again in three days. Now, Jesus was not in any way uh, promoting an insurrection. He was talking about his own body and what he would be raised from the dead. But Caiaphas was not after the truth. Caiaphas was after a conviction. So Caiaphas approaches the prisoner who had been quiet all this time, and he has to wonder with all these witnesses and everything that people are saying about it, at no time is Jesus saying anything uh, to defend himself. This prisoner just stands there silently and is just taking it all in. Let me make this crystal clear today, friends. This pretentious priest is not the one in control here. The Bible says in John 8, 10, 17, Therefore doth my Father love me, because I lay down my life that I might take it up again. He says, no man takes my life from me, but I lay it down myself. I have the power to lay it down, and I have the power to take it up again. Standing before these false accusers is this man, the very Son of God. He is willing to suffer pain and rejection, and he's doing it for you, and he's doing it for me. Why climb that dreadful mountain? Why suffer agony? Why give his blood a fountain, spilled and broken, flowing free? Why walk the road to Calvary? Give his life so willingly. It was for me he died. For me he died. For me he shed his blood on that tree. It was for me he came. For me his shame. It was for me, oh praise his name. It was for me and it was for you too. Now we're down to the big moment. Caiaphas asked the question that everybody's there to hear the answer to. This is what it's all about. He comes up to Jesus in verse 63, we read it, and he says, I adjure thee. That essentially is putting Jesus under oath. I swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help me God. That's what Jesus essentially is being put in his place there by this adjure. I adjure thee. Tell us whether thou be Christ, 
the Son of God? This is the defining question. It all comes down to this. Because if Jesus claims to be God, then they have Him on blasphemy, which is a death penalty offense. Jesus looked right back square in the eyes of Caiaphas and He replied, Thou hast said. The listeners would be shocked. This man claimed to be the Son of God. Jesus then didn't stop there. He said, Hereafter shall you see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. Caiaphas had heard enough. He goes to the side and as a show to everybody around him, he tears his clothing apart and he screams out, Blasphemy! And he says, There's nothing, no reason we need to have a further trial. This man has done it already. He turns to his cronies. He asks, What think ye? They all agreed he is guilty of death. This trumped-up court, with all its illegal doings, gave their verdict. This man is too dangerous to live. Caiaphas has accomplished his mission. They gathered around Jesus. The Bible says they started slapping him, spitting in his face. Jesus is brought to Pilate, then to Herod, then to Pilate, back to Pilate. Outside the city, they take him to a hill shaped like a skull. And there, the Lord Jesus is crucified. Caiaphas gets the news after it's over with a sigh of satisfaction. He thinks, well, at last, I've taken care of the Jesus problem. But oh, little Caiaphas, I've got news. You're wrong on that score. You're not through with him yet. Because it looks like defeat now, but Sunday is coming. It looks like the forces of evil have won. But Sunday is coming. The disciples are scattered and Mary is crying, but Sunday is coming. Hope is lost, death has won, sin has conquered, but Sunday is coming. The Pharisees are celebrating. The disciples are questioning, but Sunday is coming. And friend, we could say the same about our world today. Uh, the world is winning. People are sinning. Evil is grinning, but Sunday is coming. One day the Lord Jesus Christ is coming back. Praise the Lord. They buried the body of Jesus. A man called Joseph of Arimathea went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. I was reading this morning. <coughs> I came across a little illustration. I didn't write it down, but I just thought of it. Uh, Pilate, uh, Joseph of Arimathea was a very wealthy man. And it was the conversation between him and Pilate when he went and asked for Jesus' body. And Pilate said, but Joseph, you've just built this very nice tomb and it's for you one day and why would you give it to a, a, a criminal like this? And Joseph of Arimathea said, he just needs it for the weekend. <laughs> Amen. That's not exactly how it went down, but I like it. Uh, the, they wrapped him and Nicodemus, wrapped the body of Jesus in strips of linen cloth. By the way, if it were not for him, Jesus would have just been thrown in a pile of criminals, uh, in a pile of corpses, not given a barrel at all. But now it's getting near sundown. The problem with this is because the Old Testament forbade the Jews to handle the dead body on the Sabbath. So they had no time to find a grave, and Joseph volunteers his own grave. This was his tomb. It was the one that he had uh, planned to be interred in one day. And praise the Lord, he could still do that because he's going to get it back. But Jesus is the only uh, only person in history that can borrow a grave. Amen? I mean, everybody else, you can borrow a weed eater, a lawnmower, and not give it back, and all those things. But Jesus Christ is the only one that can borrow a grave. Hallelujah. <coughs> the two men carry the body of Jesus to the tomb, and there they place Him with heavy hearts. Luke chapter 23, verse 56 says, The disciples rested on the Sabbath day. 
the day before resurrection is one of those interesting, largely unrecorded days in biblical history. But we don't have to use much imagination to kind of think of where they were at that time. I mean, completely defeated. Everything they had put their hope in, it's all done for. All the, the future that they had planned, it's gone. Their businesses they had left and their families they had forsaken to follow this prophet, this Jesus Christ, and now it's all done. It was a time of uncertainty. But then came Sunday. Luke chapter 24, if you're there, if you've got your finger there, we're going to read a few verses here. Luke chapter 24, verse number 1, Now upon the first day of the week, very early in the morning, they came to the sepulcher, bringing the spices which they had prepared and certain others with them, and they found the stone rolled away from the sepulcher, and they entered in and found not the body of the Lord Jesus, and it came to pass, as they were much perplexed thereabout, behold, two men stood by them in shining garments, as they were afraid and bowed down their faces to the earth, they said unto them, Oh, I love this line, Why seek ye the living among the dead? The women came to the tomb to anoint the body of Jesus, and to their great surprise the stone was rolled away. The tomb was open, an angel stood beside them, and he gave that most powerful sentence, one of the most powerful sentences in the Bible. Why seek ye the living among the dead? He is not here. He is risen. Mary ran and found Peter and John and told them the news. Peter and John ran to the tomb, and what they found was just that, an empty tomb. Jesus rose from the dead. The uh, grave could not hold him. Death cannot keep his prey. Jesus, my Savior. He tore the bars away. Jesus, my Lord. Up from the grave he arose with a mighty triumph over his foes. He arose a victor from the dark domain and he lives forever with his saints to reign. Hey, we serve a risen Savior today, my friend. As a Muslim, a converted Muslim, years ago, was asked the question, why did you become a Christian? And this was his testimony. He said it went like this. I was journeying down the road of life and I came to a big fork in the road. He said, I didn't know which way to go, but there were two men there. One man had died and stayed dead. The other man had died and raised back to life. Who would you ask for directions? Amen. I know who I'd ask for directions. You see, friend Caiaphas, it's not over yet. You'll see him again. And by the way, Caiaphas, you asked the right question. Tell us whether thou be the Christ, the Son of God. He gave you the truth, and you would not believe it. Oh, friend Caiaphas knows the truth now, but it's too late for him. And there's an irony in Caiaphas' story, because just a week earlier than this, word had been spreading how Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, and a bunch of concerned Pharisees came in, and they said, we have got to do something about the Jesus problem. They knew they couldn't deny that Lazarus had been dead and now he's alive. So they said in John 11:48, if we let him thus alone, all men will believe in him. No, not that. We can't let everybody believe in him. So that's when Caiaphas uttered that famous line he's so well known for. He said, it is expedient for us that one man should die for the people and that the whole nation should perish not. John adds after that in the verse following that Caiaphas said much more than he knew. He didn't know that his statement was a prophecy of that the death of Christ would provide salvation for everyone who believes in him. You see, unwittingly, Caiaphas uncovered the very heart of the gospel. One man dies for many, the just for the unjust. He paid the price. He took the punishment. He suffered in your place. 
Caiaphas was so close to the truth. He was a religious leader. He ought to have seen that everything in the Old Testament pointed to this man, Jesus Christ, as the Messiah. But I tell you, being religious, even being a religious leader, does not guarantee any spiritual enlightenment in anyone's life. He was so blinded by his hatred of Christ that he could not see who he really was. Now let's consider what happened to Caiaphas. If, By the way, we can't just feel sorry for him or we'll miss the point of the story. Here's the lesson we learned from him. He was religious. He was really, really religious. And it was his religion that blinded his eyes to the truth. Because you see, friend, religion is in no way going to get us to heaven or get us to God or make us any better or closer to the Lord than we are now. Religion is false. And if the devil has done any, uh, the most good the devil's ever done in the world is to create religions. I, I, I've talked to a person recently and I told him I'm a pastor, and, and he said, oh, well, no offense, but I hate religion. And I said, no offense taken. I hate it more than you do, believe me. It was a kind of a surprising thing for him to hear. But I do hate religion. By the way, there's really only two religions in the world. Uh, you might have talked to people before. There's, you know, there's, uh, if you go to uh, websites and do lists of religions, you see thousands, but it really is only two religions in the whole world. I'm going to lay them out for you right now. One religion says do, D-O, and many, many forms of that religion. And one religion says done. Lord Jesus Christ going to the cross, paying for our sins, uh, stretching out his arms and dying for us, laying down his life and then saying it is finished on that cross, saying it is done. Here's the lesson. He was religious, but his religion blinded his eyes. In sending Christ away to be crucified, Caiaphas thought he was doing God's will. He thought he was following the law of God by rejecting the Son of God. Because you see, the way to God is not through a religion or a system, but a relationship with a Son. And that's what Caiaphas rejected and sent away. The people all over the world are doing the exact same thing today. They trust church membership. They trust baptism. They trust confirmation. They trust the fact that when they were a little baby before they knew what was going on, somebody made them wet. And somehow that's going to get them to heaven one day. That's ridiculous. It's not in your Bible. And they trust those things because they put their faith in religion when religion will take you straight to hell just as fast as sin will. In our religious activity, we're trying to measure up to God and in so doing, we actually find ourselves working against Him. What a tragedy it would be, friend, if you lived your life full of religion and missed the truth like Caiaphas did. How amazing. Gave his whole life to a religion. And yet when he had the truth just a foot in front of him, he rejected it outright. That's what religion will do. Caiaphas had every opportunity, yet he missed it. Truth is standing right in front of him that fateful night in Jerusalem. And that night Jesus stood on trial before Caiaphas. Only, listen friend, it wasn't really Jesus on trial. It was Caiaphas on trial, if you want to be honest about it. He feared what he did not understand. He hated what he could not control. He condemned and rejected the only hope for his soul. It's a story that should be a warning to us all. Jesus today is still on trial in every human heart. You have to make a choice. You cannot look at Jesus and say, oh, you know what? He's a good man. Taught a lot of good things. 
I like to learn everything I can from him. You will either accept him for who he is or reject him outright. There is no middle ground. He said he is the Son of God. He is the Messiah. He said that uh, no man cometh to the Father but through me, he said. He said, I am the door. I, he said, I am the way. Those little words, these are definite articles if I remember English class. I am the way, the truth, the life. No man cometh to the Father but through me. He is the only way to heaven and Caiaphas sent him packing. Oh friend, don't make the mistake Caiaphas did. Each one of us has to choose what we believe about Jesus Christ because he did die, but friend, he rose again. He's as alive today as he was the night he stood in front of Caiaphas. But today he doesn't stand in front of Caiaphas. He stands in front of you. And that choice is the same in your heart as it was for Caiaphas. Will you accept him, receive him if you have not done so already, or will you send him away? What will you do with the Jesus problem? Will you make it the Jesus solution for you and your life, or will you send him away as Caiaphas did? That choice is in front of all of us today. Hallelujah! Christ is risen. Let's spread that news. Let's have your head bowed, every eye closed this morning. I want to ask you, friend, I don't know everybody intricately here this morning, but I want to ask you a question, and I don't want you to just shove this aside. I want you to think about this question I'm going to ask you. If something happened to you on the way home today, and your life was snuffed out just like that, do you know that you know that you know you'd be in heaven? Are you 100% certain? You say, preacher, let's make that 70%. Well, friend, that's not enough, is it? I don't want to base my eternity on 70%. The Bible says, these things have I written unto you that you believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. Please, if you're here today, friend, raise your hand right now. Nobody's looking around. Nobody's going to point you out or embarrass you. Say, I'm not sure, preacher. I see that hand. I see that hand. I'm not sure. I, I am not sure. Let me pray for you. All right, and put your hands down. Listen, friend, would you please allow us today to take the Word of God and show you how you can know for certain that you're on your way to heaven. We'd love to do that. What about you, dear Christian? What about you? How's your relationship been with your risen Savior? You know, many of us live our lives, our Christian lives, like He's not alive, like He's dead. But He's not dead. He's alive. And we can live in His power in our life.